and say, here we go. Well, here we are, episode two. And I'm so glad you liked the title because I went with it anyway. Yes. Center of Attention session. <laughs> yes, where, where you and I battle face-to-face to see who can, who can end the podcast by grabbing more of the center of attention. Why not? I think, it's, I think it's by actually... the end we declare our winner. Yeah, well, you know, I think, ooh, yeah, okay, okay. Um, I think my, <laughs> my thinking behind the title of the podcast was actually that it's something that we all struggle with as entrepreneurs because when you're doing the social media thing and you're scared of the accusations of narcissism, which we all get when we're, you know, out there in social media, um, yeah, claiming that it's okay to want to be the centre of attention for your business, for yourself, for your brand, whatever that might be, I don't know, or just because we're those kind of people. <laughs> well, see, and if you recall, we started off the last podcast episode by talking about how amazing it was that, that you know, we're, that we're doing this and that usually you're interviewing people and that we both like to hear ourselves speak. And so I just <laughs> took the title to mean in a cheeky kind of way. I, I heard your voice in my head yeah. saying, ah, we will battle out to see who has dominance as the center of attention of this podcast. Yes. Yes. Now, under normal circumstances, if we were in the same room, that would uh, end with a threat for a dance-off. Um, I've never actually had, mm, you know, <laughs> was that a bit of jazz hands there? Uh, yeah. So <laughs> you're just winning already. You're winning all over the place. So um, we were talking very loosely about a topic for today and we are talking about the possibility of discussing origin stories. Mm-hmm. So one of the things, because one of the things I thought might be a good starting place is talking not only about how our business has started but also how people start a business. You know, people overthink, oftentimes people overthink the startup of a business. So I'm going to also try and keep my eye on uh, Facebook because I actually think we might get some questions about this as we're going forward. So I'll have this on silent. And so if my attention wanders, it's not because you're no longer the centre of my attention. (laughs) I like it so much. It's because I'm trying to do all things. I'm trying to do all things. Be all things for people at all times. Of course, nobody can. For all of us who have started businesses, obviously we all have our own origin story and the bumps along the way. And those who have yet to start a business but have interest in it um, or maybe flirt with the idea or think about it, there are all these scary unknowns that really um, you can't plan for. It's, it's, a bit, it's a bit like parenting for those of us who are parents, right? All the things we worry about are actually not a big deal. And all the things that become a big deal are the things that we would never even thought to worry about. And so... <laughs> that is so true. Yeah. <laughs> I came up with that myself even. I didn't even steal that from anyone. But You need to stick that on a quote. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? Running a business, starting a business is the same thing. You get all caught up on the things that you're worrying about mm. and they don't really matter. You know, uh, there's something they really don't. They don't, and then and then all the stuff that that you get shocked and surprised with are the things that you would have never mm. seen coming. That's so true. So you know, I mean, I've talked quite a bit about some pretty hefty staffing crises that I've had a couple of times in my business, and uh, never saw either of those coming. Do I have my bandaid on my thumb? I'm moving house, and I cut my thumb on a new bread knife. Uh, uh, yeah, hold so- on. Can you see that I, cut, I literally cut my fingernail off? That's attractive. At least I covered mine with a Band-Aid. Well, this, um, this was three weeks ago. I cut it so deep that uh, my wife was away. I cut it so deep that I, I literally, the thought crossed my mind, hmm, I might have to go to the hospital. And I yeah. used tape to stop the bleeding, but then my finger turned blue. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> attractive. Anyway. So yes, yeah, I didn't see these two staffing crisis coming uh, and even when I use the power of hindsight you know we were, oh, right now that makes sense even with the power of hindsight there were very few clues of what was going to happen because mm. the, the I guess the trigger points for both of those things were unknowable mm-hmm. uh, unforeseeable and um, but also okay never saw them coming they were catastrophic at the time I mean in one ca- on one occasion I woke up with chest pain like you know it was that stressful but fullness of time, as with parenting, the fullness of time, you grow through growing pains. You grow through difficult crises in your family. 
uh, you, you learn to adapt to that new, it's kind of like a loss of innocence. You can no longer go back to who you were before that, uh, that episode in your business, but you learn from it and you incorporate that learning into who you are as a business owner growing, growing and going forward, which isn't a bad thing. It's all part of the experience. Right. <laughs> I, yeah, for sure. You know, when, when you think about parenting or kids, you grow up with them, as you mentioned. Um, and I, I, so, so if, as long as we're talking about the center of attention and all these things, I think for most people who think about starting a business, they flirt with the idea of it because it sounds exciting and it sounds fun and you get to finally do your own thing and be your own boss. And, and, and there's like a freedom that we sell about it. Mm. Right. I used to be in franchising and we used to sell franchises to people who wanted to run their own business based off of freedoms, independence, and um, earning potential. You know, it was selling the vision, right? Imagine the freedom, imagine the independence, imagine how much money you could earn. And, and I tricked myself into those things as well and then found out that, that there are certain freedoms, but not really. Uh, there's actually not as much independence as you think, although you get to make the decisions, but the, then the decisions are yours and you have to live and die by them. And uh, gosh, you know, after seven years, there typically starts to be great financial independence, but, but it takes a long time. So I don't want to talk it people out of it. Huge amount amazing, but no, no, no. I, mean, I think this is, but this is the what's and all stuff. So um, I've just started a weekly podcast with a friend of mine who's also a business coach and psychologist. We, we swim in the same pond. And she and I have taken it upon ourselves, uh, being loudmouths who both like the centre of attention, uh, to talk about all the ugly, scary things about being business owners in the mental health professions and beyond that nobody talks about. And there's a lot of rules in the mental health professions and a lot of those rules get misinterpreted um, and misinterpreted in such a way that um, business owners in the mental health professions are very fearful of being labelled unethical because they're also trying to run a viable business. So, you know, that's that side of the coin. But I think for everybody who's starting a business, that that myth and that fantasy, we don't talk about enough, this idea that the freedom and flexibility, that's what we go into business for. And that's what we think we're going to get. And we kind of have this dream of the money. But I think, you know, increasingly, I think people are aware that it's a longer game than than you might have imagined. Like, it's a longer <laughs> you shake I don't think so. Not at all. People are still deluded. People are yeah. still totally deluded. I work with entrepreneurs all the time. We work with, you know, maybe six to ten startup entrepreneurs every year um, to help them through brand strategy and create a strategy and go to market strategies and tactics. And they always come to me with the same, you know, like, like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm planning on, I look at their schedule and they go, yeah, yeah, we're going to do all this in eight weeks. And then a year later, we're most of the way through it. And they're just like, it takes so much more time. It costs so much more money. Things are so much harder than I thought. I didn't know it'd be this hard. And that's the thing, you know, a lot of times I think people think entrepreneurs are risk takers and we're not, we're just foolish. We foolishly believe that we can do it, that we have a better way. Um, we trick ourselves into it. And if we knew how hard it was, we wouldn't do it. But frankly, we don't know how hard it was, it's going to be. Uh, so we do it. And then at, at a certain point, there's no going back. <laughs> You're in yeah, it now. Yeah. And right. so you keep going. That's the point and no return. Yeah. It's interesting. I don't know um, if you face this, but I, I know certainly for myself and for other business owners that I know, there's two sides of the same coin. It's the, it's the partner who says, when are you going to just go and get a job? Um, and then, or, or it's the self that says, maybe I'm going to chuck this and just go and get a job. Mm-hmm. I think, I think that the defining difference for entrepreneurs in starting their own business is the freedom, the flexibility, the financial side of things. I think it's also that notion that, um, there is a point of no return when it comes to being answerable to somebody else. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you live, you know, is, well, I don't know. Do you agree with this? This is, this is certainly how I feel. I don't feel, I don't know how I would go or I don't, not that I couldn't, but I don't know how I would go having somebody else be the boss of me. Yeah. <laughs> even, the, even the thought of it makes me laugh. <laughs> well, so, I mean, I think it, de- I think it depends. Like, I, I think if, if I had to go work for someone else in a company exactly like mine, 
then I would struggle to keep my mouth shut because I would want to run it the way that I ran my company. But if I'm working for someone else, I didn't run my company very well. So maybe there's something I can learn from them. But yeah. But most of the time, I, you know, you are working for your patients, I feel like. I am working for my clients because we're an agency, we're, we're a service mm-hmm. provider. And so that freedom, I don't feel a ton of freedom because I feel beholden, beholden, beholden to beholden. my staff, my team, and my clients. They're not my projects, they're my clients' projects. Um, yep. And I already feel like I'm working for someone else anyway all the time. And so uh, I, 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 the same way people in corporate or whatever in the, in, the, in the world fantasize about starting, you know, let's leave the hospital systems and go start private practice. The people who are in private practice go like, oh man, imagine how great it would be to just work, walk into a hospital system or whatever, a healthcare system and, and, um, and get paid and only, you know, only work these hours to these hours and not bring this stuff home and not have to worry about it. And like, so the grass is always greener. You know, there's lots of times where I I think like, like, honestly, I could, I could probably very easily double my income, my personal income. If I just went and got a job for someone else. And I was reminded of that. (laughs) Yeah. That's interesting because that's probably the number one theme, I guess, financially that business owners hint at but don't necessarily talk openly about. So there's an assumption when you've got your own business and other people are outside looking in at you running your own business, people assume that you're rolling in cash. Mm -hmm. And I jokingly but not joking say, no, 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 I'm rolling in bills Um, and not dollar bills either. You know, and and it's because... (laughs) Your personal take-home income, you know, you live and die on the success of your business, but your business success is not necessarily measurable. I mean, it is measurable in annual terms, but in terms of whether whether or not you're having a good week or a good month or a good quarter, that fluctuates. So, of course, for the tax office, you're reporting back annually, but, you know, the the cash flow ups and downs. And I think that's something that frightens a lot of business owners when it comes to paying themselves a decent income out of their business takings because they're scared of the next downward turn. Well, you, you know what? It's funny that we don't spend a lot of time talking about this and we could spend the entire episode going to just all the terrible things that come with it. But I also don't want to just, you know, uh, put people off. Well, no. because, because, so, because you're, you're, I mean, there are, there are tons of benefits. You're an artist and you're creating something. Totally. You're, you, totally. you're building something you're proud of that takes years and years. And, um, I mean, if you're doing it right over the long term, you're building wealth, mm. uh, you're building assets that, uh, and, and even, even skill sets and, and, mm. you know, honestly, so I'm, I'm 36. I started my firm when I was 23. Uh, I, I started, I went to a private institute for, for post-secondary education. So I was only in post-secondary for 18 months. So I entered the workforce, I think at 20 or, you know, yeah, something yeah. like that. And so uh, honestly, if I took a corporate career path, I would not know what I know. I would not be having the conversations that I'm having or, or even command mm. the boardroom tables or the rooms or even operating at the level that I've been operating at for the last several years. Because as soon as I started my firm, within three or four years, I, I had this perceived um, invitation into rooms and at tables and, and hosting conversations that if I took a corporate path, I never, I never would have been able to move as quickly as I did. Mm. And so I think even, you know, within the people who are listening from, from um, your audience, you know, there's, there's certain things that fall on your shoulders that you can't measure how valuable it is having experienced it, learned it, having that knowledge. Um, you know, I, 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 there's just so many things you can do so quickly when you move out on your own because you're not waiting for someone to hand you the opportunity to try or fail. Yeah. And this is, that's probably a really important reflection of what I'm talking about in, in terms of whether or not I personally could work for somebody else because even we talked about you know yes there might be benefits to just having a job but for me personally the handbrake aspect like you say you know you'd struggle to keep your mouth shut if you saw opportunities that weren't within your scope to discuss I can't understand people being satisfied in a job where they can see opportunities for growth, but it's not within the scope of their role. So they, they, they're like, Oh, well, Mm -hmm. they'll figure it out themselves. I I couldn't, I couldn't keep my mouth shut, but I also struggle to have that hand, that handbrake that says no slow down test. There are all these other reasons why you need, there's no stuff that. 
I did a live stream yesterday. I did a live stream yesterday where I'm I'm typing out this text to go with it and I'm on the fly, I'm walking down the street typing, didn't have my glasses on, typing, and it went live with a thousand and one typographical errors. Didn't matter. The message was still the same. I corrected it later. I still did the thing. But if I had somebody else over overseeing what I do and say, well, actually, no, you can't put that out in a public space until it's perfect, nothing would ever get done. Like, perfect doesn't well, exist. You know, yeah. So, I mean, we're really bouncing around now, but I'm the entrepreneurial bottleneck in my That's country. just the way we're going to roll. That's because, the way we're going to roll. You know, that's the other thing with being the entrepreneur, being the leader, being the owner. Um, that that thing that you would complain about, my staff complains about with me, because well, it's it's yeah, not that right. it's not that I need things done my way. I I don't. We actually have this system that I use for delegating called my way, not my way, the right way or the wrong way. Meaning, if it's if it's right, but it's just not how I would do it, it's still I have to let it go. But if it's wrong, uh, then like if it's wrong, then it doesn't matter if it's my way or not my way. It, this thing is getting fixed. Um, mm. Uh, so I use kind of tools like this to help me let go of things, but, but my version of wrong and their version of wrong are also subject to, to, uh, differing points of view. Uh, you know, like if, if something went out for me with a typo, I go, Oh, there's a typo in there. If something went out for my team, I go like, Hey, there's some typos there. It looks kind of sloppy. It makes us look, you know, we're supposed to be communicators. We're not doing a good job communicating. What would people think about us? Try not to let it happen again. If it went out a bunch of times, I'd, I'd be just pure angry. <laughs> So. Yeah. So if I was paying somebody to do that stuff for me and it was, whether it's a staff member or an outsourced agency, um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I would not be happy, but you know, I'm allowed to make the mistakes. It's my business. It's my reputation on the line and I'm the one that's going to fix it. And that's okay. And it's, it's useful. You know, it's a useful talking point. We're talking about it now. You know, yeah. it's like for my coach clients, it's a useful talking point. Wow. Sky doesn't fall in. Way when you to rationalize out there. That, that egregious I'm error. Good at it. I'm, so good. I'm so good at it. So good at it. But did you the sky know, fall in? No, look, it's still there. It's yeah, still you there. do know that you, that you that you embarrassed yourself, that people think less of you no, now. No. Uh, no, no, you no. literally lose clients over this, and yet you... <laughs> See, this is the stuff, though. That is exactly the stuff that people tell themselves. I will lose clients. I will embarrass myself. People will judge me. People, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. No, stuff people. I love people, but stuff the people in my head conversation because right. that's, that's nothing. That's nonsense. So let's get back to our theme today of our origin, of origin stories. And I think that, you know, struggling with perfectionism, waiting for everything to be right, getting all your ducks in a row, all that stuff, delays people from starting and I think that the key message is to just start mm -hmm. um, and I think back to when I started I mean the psychology profession has changed a lot since when I started um, but when I started you really felt you had to earn your stripes in other agencies before you were allowed in inverted mm -hmm. commas to go into private practice and I worked in, you know, community mental health. I worked in a couple of prisons. I lectured at the university. I did a whole bunch of things and started very, very small. So I still remember um, my very first client because I started seeing one client a week after work. Like that's how I started, very, very small. And I let that grow organically over a number of years. I didn't push the growth. And I can see in hindsight there was a lot of fear. So I had my own personal handbrake that I need to have a secure income before I can do more of the business mm. side of things. Um, and when I finally decided to throw out the big secure income and go full time in private practice, um, my final day working at the, I was lecturing at the university then, and my final day working on campus was, you know, you know, and the next day I would be full-time in my own business with no sick leave, no anything like that. It's do or die. So my final day working at the university was the day I discovered I was pregnant with my first child. Wow. So, you know, <laughs> so, you know, I had to just say, oh, well, I've already made this decision. I don't have maternity leave. I just have to make this work. Mm -hmm. And um, clearly I did. Um but I think, you know, the, the capacity to learn gradually over time helped me. Interestingly, now as a business coach, 
I'm encouraging people to move faster, not faster than they can tolerate, but faster than they think they can tolerate. Of course. And so that subtle difference there. Um, simple things like fee increases. I'm having this uh, lovely, friendly debate with someone at the moment about increasing her fees. She, I, I 100% believe she's undercharging for what she does. Um, and, she's, and, and the response is, oh, but I, I've already put my fees up once this year. And my response to that is new people who are ringing to make an inquiry don't know that you've already increased your fees once this year. Yeah, you can, you can simply grandfather the old pricing for your old clients and then show them pricing for the of public. Course. You could, yeah, of course. Your business, your rules. Right. <laughs> or you can, you know, you can have a grace period for old clients. There's any way, any number of ways of handling that conversation. But new clients don't know that yesterday, if they'd rung yesterday, the fee would be different. And so that's an internal struggle that people have. Now, the best advice I got as a startup around fees was a colleague of mine when I told her, and she'd been in private practice for a long time, and I told her I was going into business for myself, and I felt very scared that she would judge me for having the audacity to go into business for myself as a psychologist. And her advice to me was, well, her response to me was, don't you dare undercut me. Now, I didn't realise it, but until that moment, I hadn't felt allowed to charge the same as her. And I hadn't, hadn't seen that it could be viewed as undercutting. Mm-hmm. Right? So I started my business charging the same as her, hoping the sky wouldn't fall in. The sky didn't. Um, but I used that conversation. And she was someone whose opinion I really respected. So I used that conversation to just counteract that fear that I was having around what are people going to think? about who the hell does she think she is charging this amount. And of course, I had, you know, pots of years of experience at the time, but yeah. I was new in, in business. I, I think didn't, feel, didn't feel just right. I think it's doubly challenging for people who are service providers um, of, of any kind uh, when, when you're in your space especially because you love people mm. so much, you care for people so much. Yeah. Uh, a yeah. lot of uh, uh, clinicians are, are people who need to be needed. And so the thought of turning someone away or, or denying service or that really yeah. uncomfortable conversation around price like genuinely bothers them and makes them so uncomfortable they would rather big avoid barrier. it. Um, yeah, big barrier. Big yeah, barrier. Lucky for me and other entrepreneurs, we don't care that much about people. So, <laughs> so we want to help people. I really want to help people. But I want to help people achieve things. It's different than like, yeah. like it, it, to me, it's just so cut and dry because people, the only time I run into pricing issues is when people go, oof, it's budget. And I go, okay, well, I mean, like, like things cost what they cost. Um, we, can, we can rethink and rescale this. So in your situation, I can see going from like, well, I suggest we do twice a week, but we can go down to once per week, right? We can try a bunch of half hour sessions or do telecommuting or whatever it's called, right? Like yeah. there's ways we can yeah, do yeah. it. So we can still get a little bit of help, get you in here and then we'll see where we can take it from there, blah, 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 whatever it is. It's just when people go, no, 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 no. I want all of that stuff. I'm just not going to pay it. And then I go, <laughs> oh, okay. They, they cost what, but it costs Bye-bye. what it costs. And they go, yeah, yeah, we know, we know, we know. It's just, it's just, again, we want all of this stuff. We, we definitely are going to move forward with you and get all of this stuff. We're just not going to pay that much. And I go, that's not how it works. <laughs> yeah. So. It's interesting. It's so interesting, those conversations. And we do sometimes see that in mental health. People try to haggle uh, for, for a discount or a bargain or whatever. Um, but you're right about the care, the caring factor. Not the, I don't think, I don't believe for a minute that other entrepreneurs, I know that you're joking, but that other, other entrepreneurs don't care about their clients. I think, I think we are all kind of the same cloth. We care about clients and we care about outcome and we care about helping people. I don't know if we all care about people the same way though. In the same way. So well, that's I, it's not, it's not, I'm hedging it. I know <laughs> that I don't care about people as much as, as other clinicians that I know, because, you know, even though I yeah. do charitable work and even though I love my clients and even though all of that stuff, Literally, yeah. like one-on-ones with people, I just, yeah, you, you guys are cut from a different cloth than I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I researched psychopaths for my PhD. So, uh, yeah, 
I'll let you know if I'm concerned about your capacity to care for I, other I, I looked into doing some tests or whatnot, or I mean, I, you know, I looked no, at no, all no, the no, symptoms no. as well. I'm not psychopathic yet. You absolutely are not. And in fact, you would know because Canada is the, the, the ground zero for psychopathy, you know, psychopathy research. It's a very well respected field of research in Canada. Ooh. Now, what I was going to say about that, yeah, yeah, the expert came out of Canada. Uh, one of the things that I think that is such an important conversation in any profession, I have this conversation a lot and it's a hard one to have without offending people. Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty much a straight shooter, so I tend to just say it as I see it. And sometimes, I don't know, I may inadvertently offend people, but I try not to. I do, I do care about this. Okay, major hedge. We're starting from but hedge land here. We're hedging. Okay, so this is, this is we're, we're just peeking above the hedgerow. Right? But um, if you care so passionately about people that you are at risk of going bankrupt in your business, so in terms of, you know, you're so caring and so so values driven about how you service people and the affordability of your service, but you as a business owner are at, at risk financially, risk of burnout, your family struggling, blah, 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 blah. Then maybe being a private business owner isn't the right place for you to meet the values that you have about serving people so maybe there's another place for you to do that now whether you do that exclusively instead of being in business for yourself or whether you do that as well as being in business for yourself so that your business can charge an appropriate fee to keep its nose clean to keep you fed and watered to all of those things to do what it's meant to do so it thrives and you leave a legacy for your family and you employ people and all those wonderful things that you can do when you've got a thriving business and you might meet your values-based needs about servicing people where they're at. You know, if they can't afford to pay anything, you want to offer a free service, don't try and do that in a private business. Do that in a non-profit. And you might do that, you know, as an employee in a non-profit on the side. So yeah. that conversation is a hard one for a lot of people to hear. I don't think... Um... So this, I don't know if this is a hot take or not. I don't think any entrepreneur can do it on their own because, because all of the skill sets that I have and the God-given gifts that I've been given make me really, really, really amazing at some things and really, really bad at other things. And so yeah. uh, we are all called to be technicians or craftsmen um, and marketers yeah. and salespeople and operations and, and HR and all of these things. And so if someone, though, is is really that gifted at their, at their profession or craft. Um, before I thought of, I would suggest jumping out or, or, or bailing or, or anything, especially if you've put time into it, I would look for a partner. I would look for someone to, or, or even a well-paid ma business manager or staff member to come in because, because if you are really that good at what you do that you had the confidence to step out on your own, imagine how amazing you can be if you don't have to worry about all the things in the business that revolve around running the business. So, yeah. you know, if, if I was working yeah. with, with Dr. Tess and we were going into partnership together, I would look at mm -hmm. your skills and your product and and your time and everything and i would go oh, this is amazing right i don't need i don't need to um have your skill sets to be able to partner with you to help grow an amazing practice now i don't know about the regulations or the laws or ownership or any of those things because some places you know sometimes it's an issue so different mm -hmm. but um but before i gave up on something i would look for someone that i could even give you know equity in or someone to come in and say you know what i just you make sure that the business looks great and runs well and services people and we charge appropriately and all of those things. And I'm going to sit in my office and I just want to open the door and let people come in and close the door. And I want to make yes. sure that we give away pro bono yes. hours every month. You figure out how to do yeah. it. Let's go. You know, like yeah. that, that's what I would do first. I think, I think for many uh, where that comes into it is having administrative support. So a lot of um, mental health professionals feel uncomfortable talking about dollars and so they don't. And so then they do what we refer to as bulk billing. So it's under Medicare in Australia um, and it's 
means that the government pays for the session for the client, um, but the amount of money the government pays, it's actually meant to be a contribution towards their session. It's not meant to be the whole fee. And so a lot of clinicians will, will bulk bill, which means they are willing to accept only the government amount, which is about half or less than half of our recommended fee. So because people are uncomfortable having the conversation about dollars, they run their business at such a great loss, they can't afford to employ, say, an admin person who would have the dollars conversations for them. I'm not so even thinking that, admin. I'm thinking, I'm thinking yeah. equity partner, right? You know, like, yeah, that's like, a hard one. I, yeah, that's a hard one. I think in, in I, I don't know that the mental health professions are quite there yet in terms of equity partnerships to build a business up to being successful. Because private um, practice is private practice. And, you know, if, yeah. if you are the, the you're, if you're, you know, I, so I would think in terms of like a law firm, right? You know, maybe your name yeah. is the one yeah. on the yeah. banner, but I have a vision of taking you to 12 locations and, um, you know, many, many people under you and all of these things. And, and, you know, but, but I can't practice the art of what you do. You know, like, like I, I always said that if my, if my, something happened to my business, the next business I would want to start was a, is a plumbing or electrician business because the trades are in such high demand and there's the customer service is so poorly done. The marketing is so poorly done. So much about it is so poorly done. Here's the thing. I'm not an electrician and I, I, I don't have any plans of becoming an electrician. I would need to go out and find like some electricians or licensed people or someone to do that. I can say, Hey, let's build this business together because I know how to do this. I just don't, I, I'm not going to practice the art or go out on the calls or unplug toilets or whatever it is. Yeah. That's an interesting thought. I don't think that's a conversation that I'm hearing very much in the mental health space, but I, I can see that there is, there's, you know, there's a couple of people that have built up I and mean, I've got a multi, multi-location practice. Um, and I'm, you know, I know a number of people who have done that, but these are things that have been built organically over time or have been, you know, internal decisions from a business perspective over time, as opposed to having an equity partner come in and build up a massive, like ramp up the growth strategy. Well, or even a small, a small company, you know, my, we're talking origin stories. So if I go back to the past, yeah, yeah. my first real employee that I hired, so I started my firm in 2006 mm-hmm. We had this little recession that happened in 2008, that nine that you may recall. Mm. Um, and so I lost, like we had, we, we burnt through all of the cash we had on hand. I had one staff member I paid minimum wage that I had to let go of in, in January. And so in the middle of February, I found myself alone in a tiny sublet office, 180 square foot office that I, that I rented with no clients, with no money. I would go into work every day with nothing to do. There was a one month period where I had no calls, no work, nothing to do. And I thought, you know what? I, I called my mom and I said, you know what? I, I don't know why I'm doing this. Cause I, I've been doing it for two years. You know, the first year we only earned $18,000 income. And like you, my, I decided to start my company when my daughter was three months old. My wife was at home with no income and I quit my job to start my company. So we made $18,000 the first year. I think we made $30,000 the next year. That was our household income. Um, what, like below the poverty line in Toronto. <laughs> that's, that's, that's how our income works here. Uh, anyway, so, so long story short though, I was like, I need, I need to kickstart this. I need something to work. I need to make it happen. And so um, I went out and I borrowed money from my mom and my grandfather and I borrowed $50,000 and I hired a headhunter and I hired a salesperson. And the first person stayed with me for a month and then quit because they got another job offer. Um, and so I, I, I spent $6,000 or whatever it was like gone out of gone, gone. Yeah. nothing to show for it. I did it again, went back to the headhunter, said, find me someone else. Anyway, he, he found me someone. And for seven months, I paid this person their $50,000 salary, which is not much base plus commission I paid them the, the, this. And I wrote myself every paycheck and paid the income tax on the paycheck, but never took it to the bank because we didn't have the cash. And so for seven months, I didn't pay myself anything at all. And I paid this person, you know, not a huge salary, but their salary. And I paid the rent and I paid everything else. And it took us about a year to kind of like kickstart. But this is the thing. This is the thing when you're starting something 
And it's easier to start something when you have nothing to lose. Like we had a rented place, a rented flat. We had nothing to lose. Um, but when you're a little bit older and you're a little bit more comfortable and you have the mortgage and the kids and all this stuff, you think that you need a lot. But every time that, that I've seen a business owner or someone starting something worry about paying themselves first, it kills their growth and it actually, it, it actually keeps them from succeeding. Yeah. When yeah. you are willing to say, you know what? I can't, I, I'm just not going to be able to pay myself for six months or I'm going to live off, you know, the bare minimum or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do all those things that I can do. We just don't have it now. And when you're willing to do that for six months or a year, a year and a half or two years, that is the window you need to pay the people that you need to pay them to turn everything around. So that way it pays off that, that person who can't afford the administrator, cut your salary in half. I know you're already charging half of what you should. Well, don't pay yourself anything then for three months because you can live. And three this months. is the problem. They're probably not. And this is, this is where they get stuck is they're not paying themselves. They're barely covering their costs. Um, and they're caught in this spin cycle where mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're not charging enough. And I think this is, uh, this is, you know, part of, I think, you know, our system as well as GPs. So family doctors, complain about the same thing that Medicare the way that there's bulk billing available has set up this expectation in the community that private practice private practitioners fill the gap that government agencies can't fill and that is to provide services on a bulk billing basis which isn't financially viable for private business it's just just not not in the long term and not on a grand scale and so they end up covering their bills first keeping their noses clean keeping their business open scrabbling one bit one bit one bit forward and so my my take on that particular issue and i think it is fairly specific i guess to this industry because we have that medicare issue you've got to charge your worth you've got to start from that basis you've got to charge what your fee should be no, as opposed to charging you know you what are, it, are you arguing this, with me on this, this oh is in, this is in every industry in every geography and yeah. it, it's yeah. um using the system or preconceived notions as the reason why you can't win. So I was talking to a trainer in Boston and he said, no, Mark, you don't understand in Boston, people only stay with a trainer for two years. They don't want a a physical, a personal trainer more than two years. And I said, be good enough that they never leave you. I don't care if people in Boston want, want to move on every two years. You turn yourself into someone who's good enough that people won't want to live, leave in two years. Okay, great. So everybody in the industry does bulk billing. Great. Be the person yeah. who's good enough that yeah. people are willing and to pay don't. the full yeah. rate. Exactly right. And this is the mission. So this is the mission. If you've got the skills, if you've got the experience, if you've got, and, and I, I get people to, I've got a little checklist that I get people to work through on this one you've got all the training in the world. You've got all the experience in the world. You've helped so many people already. Like there's just this big body of evidence that you are so worth charging an appropriate fee for and that people will pay it. Um, You know, because on the one hand they're saying I'm not earning enough money. And on the other hand, they're saying I've got so many referrals coming through because they're so cheap. I've got so many referrals coming through that I'm drowning. I can't possibly service all these people. What am I doing? How am I meant to handle this? Well, okay well you know fee can also be a demand management strategy and it's also you know it also feeds that you're worth this if you're charging this and there are people prepared to pay this you know then more people will come who are prepared to pay this too because you're worth it you're demonstrating your value you're demonstrating your worth to people by providing a great service not just on a treatment perspective but a customer service perspective that includes the people who refer to you looking after all those people charge your worth then you can afford to pay for an administrative support person or service it can be outsourced um, and pay yourself and be less at risk of burnout because you're not having to see 10 people in a day just to be able to cover your bills you can see a healthy number of people in a day like maybe six people in a day um, and still be earning more money than if you were bulk billing um, yeah. 10 people in a day. And I wouldn't want to be, I would not want to be the 10th client of a clinician who's struggling to pay their bills. No. And so they're cramming 10 people. In. I wouldn't want to be 
a clinician having to see a 10th person in a day. And I wouldn't want to be the client of that clinician as much as I know they, they give their best. But, but I wouldn't want to know that they've had to work that hard all day long. But this might even th- seem like a luxury, but even think about the environment. You know, you have no money for, I mean, maybe you're subletting, but, but even if you're subletting, like, you know, your own little space, you have no money for maybe a proper waiting room or for natural light or for soundproofing or to make sure that, you know, you're keeping up with the appearances because people want to go to a place they feel self and safe and comfortable. I, I have a, I have a friend who's, who's a, who I kind of mentor, who's a clinician who is in the healthcare system and has dabbled with like one day a week of, of private practice. And I kept saying like, you need to get your own space. Even if it's just a room, you need your own space. Why are you changing your hours and making your customers move around at the whim of the person you're subletting off of just because it's $500 a month or whatever it is. But but it was, it took a lot of courage and time to finally find her own space. And, and it's it, like, to me, it doesn't seem like much. I don't know what it is. Six or $700 a month. That seems easy to me and small. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful room, but I was so proud of the fact that she went out and spent, I don't know, two or $3,000 on furniture because one, it's a big move. It's a lot of money if, if you're just starting out. But to me, it, shows a sense of pride in the environment you're trying to create for people. And, you know, now that I'm really deep into my business and I spend 60 or $70,000 a year on rent and stuff, it seems like nothing, but I can remember how, how much I would have questioned even spending the money, you know, I would have used, we didn't have, (laughs) this is funny. We didn't have furniture for four years. So, so I went out, I went out and bought used banquet tables for $10 each from a hotel and I set them all up yeah. and we had done, we had done well over a million dollars revenue and I hadn't even bought furniture yet. And I used to say to the team, furniture doesn't make you money, but, but we also didn't have clients at our location. So, so think about all the, so that's the point, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I think that's the difference. It, and, and there's two arguments. So, uh, you know, I know there's a, a clever trick for people who are built, who've moved into a space that have say multiple offices, but they're only actually using one close the doors on the empty rooms and leave them empty and just mm-hmm. furnish lavishly if you want the one and the waiting space. So when your clients come in, they feel like they're in the most lovely place. They look forward to coming, whether you, it doesn't matter what industry you're in. I kind of feel that if you've got clients coming to your premises, you want them to look forward to coming to see you mm-hmm. because it's a nice place. Um, I mean, mental health services, that's a, it's a really good example of that because for many people with a mental illness, they get judged harshly in many areas of their life. And your office might be the only place where they're treated with respect and it's a nice place for them to go. Mm-hmm. And there's nice furniture for them to sit in and a nice well, coffee table and a nice cup and all and, that sort of stuff. And maybe you don't have, you know, the place yet for, you know, an entry door and a private mm-hmm. exit door. Maybe you have to stagger your hours with 15 minute windows in between or whatever you have to do for, for, for privacy sake. But what, what I always do, and I still do, I still do today, is I always think of the things that I'm going to be able to unlock. You know, when you, you know, I never really played a lot of video games, but you know how people level up with things, right? You know, you yep. progress through yep. the game and you level up. I always think of these little things I can unlock with the profitability that I'm going to be able to generate. And so, yeah. so, so, so little things, um, a high-speed scanner right? It was only $169. It took me seven years to buy a high-speed scanner. And I used to sit there and take each piece of paper and scan it manually. And when I got this thing, I was like, this is the, this is the greatest thing in the world. I can't believe I waited this long to be able to just have it like shoot through because paperwork is, you know what paperwork's like, right? Yeah, I do. I do. I do. I think, um, you know, I think about um, my beginnings not so much when I began in private practice because I was subleasing rooms, but when I, so, oh, so my business, my group practice that I started in my own space, is actually 10 years old this month. So, and I remember, oh, thank you. I haven't really made much of a noise about that. I need to do, do something about it. Um, but I remember uh, being, I remember we had to get a wall put in to separate the reception area from my consulting room and um, to create a little waiting space. And I was so grateful. And I remember feeling this huge gratitude 
to the real estate agent who rented me the space because he knew people who would do it for me, A, on the cheap and B, in a way that I could pay off gradually. Um, mm. And it just, it, I think it was only $5,000, which at the time seemed to me like the world. That seems like a lot to me too. Maybe it was $20,000. Maybe it was $20,000. I had to pay it off a $5,000 lot. I can't that, remember what it was. That seems it was outrageous some, to it was me some as thousand. Well. Yeah, exactly. So I can't remember. I'm making up numbers as I go along. Um, but it was some thousands of dollars and I was able to do it and it was fabulous. And I had had a, a glass panel at the top so that there was enough natural light mm -hmm. coming through. So it was a bit fancy. Um, and simple things like um, I think the first time we, oh, when we graduated from having a dinky photocopier and a scanner like you, it's the technology, right? It's the technology. And we graduated to renting a proper serviced mm -hmm. photocopier from one of those copier places that has all the bells and whistles and they come and put the toner in however often and all of that sort of stuff. And I felt like a proper business then when I had a proper photocopier. Yeah. So for a start, for startups, you can cope. I cope for a really long time with like a $200 printer and a $100 shredder and I cope for a really, really long time with all of that stuff. Um, <clears throat> but you, but it is exciting when, you, like you say, you level up mm -hmm. and you can afford the next thing. I've always had administrative support and I think because I started out in you know, renting rooms in places where there was always an administrative person. So for me, the priority was to continue that trend. So I've always, in my own business, I've always had administrative support. And one of the things I have learned as a business owner, certainly in our kind of industry, you provide a better customer service. You provide uh, a better support to the people on your team. Your clients are better supported. Your referrals are better supported. If you've got somebody uh, who can answer the telephone mm -hmm. when it rings, mm -hmm. as opposed to you, the sole person, having to find the time, not only are you seeing your clients, but then you've also got to find the time to listen to all the messages and chase the people to ring them back. Because how many times do you have to play phone tag yeah. This is, this is somebody, but this is what I'm talking about. You know, if, mm, if, yeah. if you, I, I really wanted to swear there. If you're going to do a bad job, you're allowed to, you're allowed ah, to swear. Great. Perfect. So, so if you're going to, if you're going to do, if you're going to offer a shitty service and have a, and really run a yeah. company that embarrasses you, but you love people, um, and, and you're going to complain that the system and, and the expectations for pricing, because you're only attracting people who have those expectations for pricing, um, you're never going to get out of this cycle. And so the secret right away is to decide that I am going to be someone who is good enough to charge what I need to charge. And it's going to have a shock to the system. You're, you might lose some clients. You might want to grandfather them. But very quickly, there will be these domino decisions that you make, right? And so maybe that's, First decision is I'm going to charge more and I'm going to take all of the money that comes from these new clients, not all the profit or anything, all of the money that comes from these new clients. And I'm going to immediately apply it to hiring an admin staff. How much does that cost? I need seven clients to pay for an admin staff. Great. I'm going to go out and get the seven clients I need. I'm going to take all of that money and hire the admin staff. And then within a two week window, I'm going to onboard them and we're going to be good enough to now service those people that I'm charging full price enough. And like, you'll make some mistakes. But within two or three months, you can literally turn an entire thing around. It can be night and day just by, by deciding that you are going to be good enough that yeah. you're worth charging the right amount. That's such an important point. It is that decision. It is a decision. Like you made a decision at the start to not charge enough. You mm -hmm. made a decision at the beginning. You, you, you did a little bit of scouting around to see what people are charging. In fact, <laughs> My mentoring clients are used to me doing this to them, but I will ask them to do a little bit of market research and what's going on in their professional community. And then I set them the challenge to be the $5 most expensive. It's only $5. Be the $5 most expensive. And they're terrified, terrified of being the most expensive. But what they very quickly discover is that then all the rest of their colleagues follow suit mm -hmm. and match them and bring their prices up. So they're actually doing a professional service to the professional community. <laughs> well, you, so you, you, making a decision to be the cheapest doesn't serve you. Making a decision to undercharge doesn't serve you. 
So why is it so hard to make a decision to charge an appropriate amount? Because there's more evidence that that will actually serve but, you. But, but we know the answer, right? The answer is insecurity. Yeah. The answer is that, you know, is, is I'd, rather, I'd rather slave away to have the tiny bit that I have now than, than work half as hard um, and, and lose it all. But, but, to be, but to be honest, you could, like, again, if you, just, if you just run the numbers, you could, you could cut down to 30% um, uh, occupancy or whatever you call it, 30% uh, billable hours at an appropriate amount and still make as much money as you're making. You would, you would free up all those hours. So why not do that? Exactly. And let's go back. Why do people come into business for themselves? Freedom, flexibility, mm-hmm. finances. Mm-hmm. And then they won't serve that vision by charging enough. So the, the, I think, you know, for any startup, it's the, it's, it's the one barrier that's got to be pushed through, first of all. First of all. It always don't, happens. No, don't I, worry I, about I, it. Yeah. We've moved up our pricing. Well, we've we've moved up our pricing many, 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 many times. Like every two yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pricing. We've been doing this for 13 years and there still doesn't seem to be enough budget to do the stuff that we want to do. So I was, you know, that's it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, so, but you are, you know, closer to the goals of what you'd want to achieve because you're charging an appropriate fee. I encourage, you know, people to consider an annual, at least an annual fee increase. Um, I mean, it depends. I mean, you're working with people who are buying what a package of, service you like you negotiate um, um, I mean, the they, project that that is going to be yeah we either do we either do project-based work or we do ongoing consultative and service-based work mm. and so yeah, we're, right. we're in a bit of a if it's i mean ultimately if it's um, project-based work i i mean for my selling method i want to know everything that they need want to accomplish and then i help them determine how to get what they accomplish mm. um you know like you are here you want to be here. What's keeping you from being here? What's holding you back? What needs to happen to get you there? And then uh, we, we determine what that is. And, but, but even within, like, I'm so lucky because there's 36 variables that affect our pricing and I have all these little levers I can pull along the way. So within a 20 minute conversation, I could literally give you a fixed price for a project that yeah. I would be able to, I confidently will be able to deliver on because behind the scenes I can move budget around and fix things and change things. And, and on top of that, I don't mind, I, I don't mind giving someone a budget like confidently and then knowing that I may lose money or may make money or whatever on it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to me. Like, like if I decided that I wanted to go, you know, I wanted to partner with you and go into private practice. I don't know. I'd say like, great, $400 an hour. I, I don't know if it's high. I don't know if that's low. It doesn't matter because I'm only saying that to one person and seeing what the reaction is. And if they go like, that's insane. I have to be good enough to warrant $400 an hour. Um, so we, yeah. we got to look good. We got to sound good. We got to be good. They might say that's insane. I say, well, I don't think that's insane at all. I, I think that's a very fair price. And then if they're like, they walk out and they're gone, I go, oh, okay, not $400 an hour. Or if they're like, great, let's get started. I go, damn, okay, next time. I know, uh, right? I, I, I hate go, that feeling. I, go, I actually hate that feeling more than people going, that's too much, I'm out of here. I hate that feeling. No, but it doesn't, it doesn't actually bother me that much because I know that, that you're my partner now. You're going to crush it. And that's only one person and they may work with us for six months or a year or two years, but, but it's a gift. It's a gift because I'm willing to give that person that price because I just learned that it's, it's low. So great. Next time now I'll go like, okay, you know, can we go to nine fifty an hour? Ooh, 950 is hard. Okay, how do we package things so it looks like it's 950, but a blended rate comes out to 800? And what can we throw? Like, I literally am just looking at every opportunity, and my team gets upset with me because I literally go like, "Hey, what should we charge for this?" And they go, they go to like look at the formulas, and I go, "I feel like this is a twelve thousand dollar thing. What do you think?" And then I'll sell it, and then they have to reverse engineer all of the hours and how it works. It doesn't matter to me. Yeah. Yeah. And so I would do the same thing with you. I would say like, well, what's the difference between 165 an hour and 250 an hour and 400 an hour and 600 an hour? And can anyone charge a thousand an hour? Can anyone charge 3000 an hour or 5,000 an hour? What do they have to do to charge that? Can we be that? Can we do that? Can we get those customers? Do we want it? Let's go. That's it. Yeah. 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 I was, I was speaking with a, um, a business coach from LA uh, for my podcast. And she Everybody in LA goes to therapy, just so you know. 
She's not a therapist. She's okay. not a therapist. She's a she's a business coach, I guess. Is, is she? I guess is her is the simplest way to describe what she does. And she charges five thousand dollars an hour for a one on one individual consultation. Okay, Tony, Tony Robbins. Tony Robbins charges a yeah. million dollars a year, and what that gets you is two like twenty minute phone calls. <laughs> right. And so you've got to, it, it, it's all, it all comes down to perceived value. Uh, and so again, you know, how your physicals look, what service you have in your business, what service, custom service you've got, perceived value. If you're operating out of a tin shed and you look like the, you've got the bum hanging out of your jeans and you're a bit laissez-faire about things people aren't going to perceive that you're delivering the value no matter how good your skills are mm -hmm. they're not going to necessarily perceive that they're getting value for what you're charging so it's not that you need to be in i don't know the most expensive office in the world but you do need to have a place that shows respect for the people who are coming in yes to your space and the service that you deliver to them you know and i include having the phone call i had a conversation with a doctor recently who was talking about um, uh, his, his pet peeve really was when he's with a patient and he wants to ring up a specialist and ask a very quick question um, about that patient and nobody answers his phone. You know, not even a receptionist answers the phone call. And if he does leave a voice message, nobody rings him back. You know, that simple level of customer service, it's all about perceived value. Um, then there's a quote that I really love and I can't remember now where I heard it, but it's a gratitude quote around other people's pricing structures and how it relates to your own. And it was um, you know, being grateful for the people who do charge more than you because they show you that it's possible. And also being grateful for the people who charge less than you because they push you to demonstrate the value that you offer. So they push you to prove your worth. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's not a bad way to be, you know, there's always room for growth and there's always room for being worth your worth. Charge your worth, but be worth your worth as well. Yes, both. Charge both. more, but, but, but be good enough to warrant that. Yeah, 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 exactly right. So, yeah. Okay, I think we've done a good job talking about won. our origins. Talk We've won. We are the center of attention. We have won. Yes. Now we'll leave it. We'll leave it for the uh, viewers and listeners, I suppose, to vote on on who won this episode. Ooh, who who won the, the episode? I'm just going to see if there's any Facebook chat up before we finish up. I'm just going to see if there's any questions, and if there's not, I don't know. I'm having trouble with my Facebook page and Facebook these days. But I'm not going to blame the system or my tools. I'm oh, going to see if I can find any questions. You should uh, record audio of yourself as you do things and talk to yourself <laughs> and then transcribe you know, that and just read back those transcriptions because I think there's something there. Here we go. We've got three comments, let's see. You should, uh, oh, look. Shush. Look, there you go. I just recorded audio of you telling me to record audio of myself. Um, yeah, no questions. No questions. So that's okay. Just some lovely comments from some lovely people who I love dearly. <laughs> I, I think, yes, you know, the whole talking myself through things, I think that started with parenthood. So business ownership is like parenting in so many ways. With you know, being at home as a new mum, I would talk all the time to my baby. I'm just going to change a nappy now and then we're going to do this. And blah, 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 you know, talk myself through what I'm doing. Uh, which I later discovered was actually a really is a recommended strategy for <laughs> language development for babies is for parents to talk to them incessantly. Yeah, my children talk a lot too. So I think I did a good job then. Uh, I, don't, I don't believe in right. parenting books. I don't believe in learning oh, no, strategies. No, no, no. I don't, not, none, of, none of that stuff. No, 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 I agree with you there. In fact, for my perinatal clients and my therapy clients who I see who are um, wanting to be parents or have become parents, I actually have a list of books that are on my burn list. I don't, I don't encourage the burning of books except for a small select special few. What to expect that, when you're uh, studying? 
I, I'm not going to name the books now because, uh, you know, I value my freedom. But, um, I, I, yes, there's a list of books, a very small list of books that make parents more anxious than they need to be, let's put mm-hmm. it that way. And they're on my burn list. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, that's a whole conversation for another time. So I am going to end our recording now. Mm-hmm. Thank you for those who are listening on the podcast because uh, we love having you. And we will see you next time. There you go. Uh, let me say, oh, gosh. And my cursor is not working, so I can't actually stop <laughs> the recording. You can't stop. I'm going to need to get a mouse. I'm going to need to get a mouse. All right. I can't even stop the meeting probably, but that's okay. We'll just get talking in. <laughs> and you're still talking your way through it. <sighs> and I'm still talking your way through it. And we're still live to Facebook. So, you know, we could be here forever. This could be purgatory. You've landed in purgatory. We're going to keep talking about it. Well, let me tell so you. It, it we is, will just say. After 5 p.m., we have this much snow outside. I have to go snowblow my driveway. So I know you don't have to deal with that in the summertime. See, there, but. I don't have to deal with that. No, this is Melbourne in spring. It's very gray and miserable, but, you know, we will get there. We will get there. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm going to say goodbye then. I'm going to love you and leave you. <laughs> and I will talk to you. In a fortnight time. I may have bought a mouse by then to help with my cursor problem. Excellent. I, I might have a, cur- I might a give cursing this problem by then. Beautiful. Look forward to seeing that. <laughs> I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs> Take care. Bye.